Kom, daar staan die hout al klaar. Pale, stompe, groot en zwaar. Voor hem nou wijd die trekkers kring. Laat ons niet mekaar verdring. Steek maar aan, steek maar aan. Dat die vlammen hoog opslaan. Steek maar aan, steek maar aan. Dat die vlammen hoog opslaan. Het is said that it is government policy to oppress its non-white peoples. To ensure everlasting domination by the whites. To perpetuate a system which denies fundamental human rights to non-whites. Including any political role of sufficient importance, and that it will never allow them any form of franchise. H.F. Verwoerd, first Prime Minister of the Republic of South Africa. The assassination took place on the 6th of September 1966. The intricacy of the situation follows from the fact that in the southern portion of the continent of Africa, a large, practically uninhabited area was settled almost simultaneously by two types of newcomers, namely the greater part by white people and a variety of smaller parts of the land by black people from Central Africa and further northwards. And it was carried out by somebody from a Portuguese mixed-race background who happened to find a way into Parliament as a messenger and literally just walked up to H.F. Verwoerd and stabbed him a number of times with a knife. And it was just such a surprise. Nobody was there in time to prevent it being fatal. As it was conveyed to me, it was a day of great mourning within the Africana community. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets in Pretoria. Huge funeral. For the architect of apartheid. Fundamentally, white rule, first by the United Kingdom and later by the South African government, and even in the 70s and 80s, when I would meet Afrikaner people, especially those from the previous generation, almost without exception, they would say uh, something very positive about my grandfather, and then they would go on and talk about what they were doing at the time on that day when they heard the news and what a big day of mourning it was. In fact, the ultimate outcome would be white national suicide which no nation can be expected to commit, and which every people will continue to resist by every means within its power. And of course, as I um, moved away from my own Afrikaner sort of closeted uh, cocoon and started to really meet with, with black South Africans, I had the same experience, but this time they would be telling me stories about not a day of mourning, but a day of dancing. I mean, literally, the people would tell you about how they would celebrate that day, because for them it was a day of liberation. Out of the blue of our sky, out of the depths of our seas. These opening words from the national anthem of South Africa in the days of apartheid are inscribed in every white South African of a certain age. We knew that the heavens were white, and most of the sea was for whites only too. Like many disaffected English-speaking South Africans of my generation, I left as soon as the opportunity presented itself. 
Apartheid, it seemed, had nothing to do with us. It belonged to the Afrikaners. But things are never that simple. South Africa fades and becomes more vivid. And as time goes by, I feel drawn to know what was that place and who were we? Last year, I made a journey to my heartland to find, if you like, my own reflection in the foreign country of the Afrikaners. So I would, I would come from a middle-class Afrikaner white family, and I grew up during the 1960s, and I think that's very significant, that I was born into the period when the Afrikaner nationalists were really in political control and apartheid was at its heyday. Well, Helm Verwoerd is the grandson of Hendrik Verwoerd. It really was an extraordinary time of, of uh, separateness or apartheid um, in terms of the neighbourhood. You know, we grew up in the kind of schools you would go to, the church you would go to, your social life, your family life, um, holidays. Basically living in an in, in Afrikaner sort of white South African enclave, seeing that as as normal. Um, I grew up in a in a very typical middle class Afrikaner family. Um, my parents were both academics. We lived for most of my life in Stellenbosch, the Western Cape in Stellenbosch, and they were both at the University of Stellenbosch. Melanie Favort is Bill Hallam's wife. So you would live in a sort of middle class neighbourhood with a nice house, with surrounded by neighbours coming from the same sort of cultural background, Afrikaans-speaking mostly. There were some English-speaking people, and you would sort of have some contact with them, but there was a sense of tension and conflict even between white Afrikaans-speaking and white English-speaking South Africans. Uh, going back to the time of the Anglo-Boer War and, and the sort of whole political struggle during the 40s and 50s uh, to achieve political control within a white Parliament, and that was very much within the Afrikaner and English uh, white community. And and pretty much, you know, I lived the way that Afrikaner kids lived, I guess, in, in the middle classes in particular. I mixed only with white kids. My school was all white. I was very religious. I was very involved in the Dutch Reformed Church, which was, of course, all white. The neighborhood was comfortable, but very white. Um, did only I did ballet mainly in sport. The little bit of sport I did was all white. Um, so pretty much that was it. Um, your only, my only, and which I would be true for, for all the kids I knew, links we would have had or engagement with with African and in the Western Cape's case more coloured, so-called coloured people would have been if people worked in your garden or came to your house to clean. Not so much the assassination, I think, but the presence of, of H.F. Uh, uh, was very big, you know, in the family and in the broader community and in the, in the broader society, you know, with names being on buildings and on dams and streets and schools and you know, it was a very, very prominent name uh, in terms of the physical, almost, geography of, of the place. So it was very difficult to not engage with that, uh, not to be influenced by that. We know even at school where teachers would say, you know, we're expecting you to do very well, or if you do something wrong, you know, they would say, you know, as if it were, you're not supposed to do that. Or, so there was that sense of uh, an expectation being placed and that sense of you are coming from a family that was, was exceptional. Um, I don't think my parents uh, 
to be fair to them, I don't think they bought into that. Uh, and we didn't live in a... And my grandfather never had the sense of being an uh, uh, exceptional person, living in a big mansion and being treated you know, very specially. He always was apparently quite a down-to-earth person and living in quite a basic house. You know, the family beach house is a very down-to-earth basic house. But, but even there you would be on holiday and people would come and knock on the door and say, you know, can we take a picture you know, of this house? So there wasn't a getting away from it, um, but it, I don't think it, we were not allowed to, to to grow up with a sense of we are special and that we should be treated specially. I mean, we were not, you know, raised like that within the family. But I mean, people did respond in those ways to you in the broader community. Well, I knew Valalam from school. I knew of him. Um, I, I remember one or two things of him from school, even though he's three years older than I am, so of course at school that, that's quite a significant difference. Um, Vilhalem went to university and studied theology, and then I went then on to university and decided to do the very strange thing of studying theology as well, um, which I was the only woman in my class of 50 men, um, even though women at that stage could not be ordained. Um, and as one of the things we did, being very religious, I went on a, on a weekend camp in the holiday resort just outside Cape Town called Betis Bay. And while we were there, um, Valhalla was also at the camp, and we went to buy some food and so on, and Valhalla asked that they stop at their family's holiday home. And I looked out from the back when he got out um, and said to one of the people in the car, what strange people have flagpoles in their backyard? I didn't actually make the connection with Favosht. And she said to me, don't you know who he is? And I said, no. And they said, it's Hendrik Favosht's grandson. And then um, we had quite a bit of talk, chats, and we had discussions around the fire and so on during that weekend. And then when we got back to campus, he asked me whether I would go accompany him to some function he had. And... That was pretty much it. I actually knew from the moment I met him that I was going to marry him. I went straight back to my roommate and said, I met the man I'm going to marry. And um, phoned my mother, told her, and she was, very, she was quite concerned, actually. She said I needed to be careful because these people are really conservative. So when Valhalla phoned me two days later, I said, well, I know I said I'll go with you to this dance, but before I finally say yes, I first need to know what's your politics and he laughed, and I think he said at this that stage that he regarded himself as to the left of the National Party. So um, that's how we met, and we... Well, Alam then went overseas quite shortly after that, which was difficult. We had got the Rhodes Scholarship and, and left first for Holland and then for England, and we got married um, about two and a half years later, in 87. <laughs> On the banks of the Orange River, not far from Kimberley, lies the town of Urania. It used to be a camp for water corporation workers. Now it is the home of white Africana separatists, a privately owned town whose inhabitants are intent on creating a new place for the Africana people, where, as they see it, their culture and language will be safe from the threat of extinction in a multiracial South Africa. Are they just gone? 
Wilhelm's cousin, Karl Boshoff, is the son of Favut's daughter, Anna. The Boshoffs are founder members of Urania, and Karl is a politician for the Freedom Front, a white Afrikaner separatist party. Uh, political political questions was uh, were very much part of, of what's been uh, highly discussed in our family. Um, and from that point of view, the fact that we were um, relatively informed of at least, uh, say, government um, policies and intentions and whatever goes with that, um, uh, the position that... that that uh, I was to take up in those very early years was actually a strange one of of criticizing apartheid from within or something like that. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, uh, uh, that we've been uh, resisting from within. That's not what I'm talking about. What, what I'm talking about is that I somehow had this idea um, that I had a privileged access to what National Party policy should actually be if ideally practiced um, and, and that has quite a lot to do with the, with the fact of my relation to Dr. Verwurt who was uh, very broadly seen as the icon of, of that policy we grew up with a very distinct sense that separate development as Verwurt formulated it was not the same as apartheid that separate development which uh, that was the the, the uh, idea that was communicated in, in the places where, where I was um, was a much more positive thing uh, than apartheid could ever be. That there was a phase in which uh, Afrikaner nationalism um, defined itself only in terms of being apart from others and, and, and um, uh, making a, a lot of, of decisions and things uh, and ordering the society in such a way that it could be uh, called apartheid, and that Verwut was uh, at essence busy doing something else, and that was empowering the different ethnic uh, communities of South Africa by way of separate development. Of course, that does not stand uh, very well to a, to a fundamental criticism that has been developed in the decades afterwards. Um, the, the first clear break that I can uh, take as my own was with P.W. Boerta. Um, we, we did not uh, go along with P.W. Boerta. Uh, I was a high school uh, child when he was becoming prime minister and I was a student at the height of his glory and, and um, we found it repressive and, and in certain senses uh, quite disgusting. The dominant uh, uh, way of, of approaching politics really during the 70s and 80s was in terms of this notion of the total onslaught. The idea of separate development and the need for uh, creating a society where different ethnic groups can live together in peace. I mean, that was the underlying policy of and the discourse that my parents would use. But it was overshadowed by this fear of a communist, so-called communist-inspired, you know, terrorist onslaught, uh, with the Soviet, you know, part of the sort of Cold War mindset, but then with a real sense of, you know, brothers and young white men going to the army, being conscripted, uh, 
at school having you know people from uh, military backgrounds, army you know officers coming and give presentations. The politics, the, every election was really fought on those on those grounds. Fear, really fear about security, fear about the total onslaught. The churches all were very involved in that. Um, so, so I think the real engagement with apartheid and with separate development, as it was called, and theologically and politically, was was defended within the whole community. That was overshadowed by the sort of security issues uh, and the uh, taking, you know, fighting the the war really against the the onslaught in in Angola and Namibia and. Zambia, Zimbabwe, so sort of the sort of border war syndrome, and with many young white men, Afrikaners, and my brothers included, during the 70s and 80s, fighting within the South African Defence Force. And I was conscripted. You know, from standard eight in school, you receive your call-up papers, and you know, during the last three years of school, you will be going to this particular unit, and you will have your basic service in Kimberley or Bloemfontein or Pretoria or wherever. And it was just accepted, you know, it was just... And I ended up not doing my military service because I was suffering from a sports injury and uh, didn't want to become a clerk. I wanted to be a proper soldier like my brother and, you know, wanted to be a good soldier and being able to, to, be, uh, to be able to compete really with my, with my peers. When I met Falana, I wasn't old enough to vote yet, <laughs> so I wasn't 18 yet, so... In a way, it's hard to say, you know, whether there was a party alignment, and I'm not even sure that I would have voted at that stage. I've always, you know, things are pretty clear to me when they're unfair, and I, I remember even as a child, very when I was about seven or eight, being on my grandparents' farm, and just being so unhappy about the conditions of the farm workers. So to me, it, you know, it, it most probably I had a sense that things were wrong. But it was only, in fact, um, when Valhalla was overseas and he started sending me some of the banned books, like uh, the transcripts of Mandela's trial, what he said at the trial, and the Ravonia trial, um, Steve Biko's, the book on Steve Biko, and, and you know, black consciousness stuff. I think it was only then, and also at that stage, I started making contacts with NUSAS and also IDASA, um, which were both organizations within the country, but who would quietly, behind the screens, make links with the ANC and some of the banned organizations. And it was only during that period then, so about two years after I met Phil Alamore, a year and a half later, that I actually could put a systematic um, connotation to the injustices that I saw on the ground and actually understood that you know it was the system, the political system, and pretty much designed by the leaders and, and, and many of them authority figures in my life that caused this injustice and pain that I could see in the society around me. My politics sort of shifted slightly with the with the shifts in the broader community, where there was a gradual acceptance, even within the National Party, towards the end of the seventies, the early eighties, that there was a need for reform, and and I was sort of part of that, I think, still, in theory, not really questioning or in in principle really questioning in a separate development, but beginning to acknowledge that in practice the policy wasn't working out and there's a need for some kind of reform. Um, 
never really moving away from this sort of underlying sense of being part of a separate Afrikaner community and that South Africa is made up of these different ethnic groups and with a strong racial consciousness. I think there wasn't a real engagement with that, but a sort of moving with the times. There was a sense in which I was not really engaging with the political scene. Partly, I think, because I wanted to get away from the Verwurt connection, but also because I think I was just sort of so committed to the um, sort of Dutch Reformed Church Christian scene. And, and within that community or that circle, those circles, sometimes people were being quite critical of politics and you know, politics is a dirty business and, you know, um, you should really focus on the sort of uh, Christian, more sort of missionary type activities. And I was part of that, that mindset. So I, was, I think it was a sense of running away from politics um, without articulating it as such. And it was only when I was literally removed from all of that, um, studying in Holland and then later studying in England, where I was unable to constantly refer back to groups or individuals who would confirm my views, but where I was challenged to rethink um, the involvement of the Dutch Reformed Church, you know, to rethink conscription, to obviously, you know, be exposed to, well, to obviously, you know, I was confronted with, with people who were very critical of the role of my grandfather, um, to be exposed to the, the media in Holland and in England, and to have access to uh, information that was uh, censored within South Africa in terms of uh, what was going on in the security police and what was going on in, in, in uh, the neighboring countries, the destabilization that was going on. So just to be exposed to all of that um, without having my support networks in place within the church, within the family, within the university, I think that was really a crucial time to begin to ask the deeper questions. It is unbearably hot in Urania, but, they tell me, the graveyard's nearly empty. The dry Karua climate is good for your health. I cower under a vine trellis in Betsy Favurt's garden, waiting for her daughter, Anna Bosov. There are hens and hydrangeas, lavender and a white rose garden. There are also three busts of Favurt nestling at intervals in the grass. Since Mrs. Favurt's death, the house has become home to the Favurt Gedenk Versammelung, a collection of memorabilia that nobody else wants. Hello. Hello. Cowering in the shade. <laughs> this is, uh, this yeah. As we move towards the house, she tells me her father always said, politics turns the wheel and you need to know that what's on top now will also go down to the bottom. My father always said, the wheel dry, but the politics dry the wheel always. And you have to know what now is come up under. Now, at that time, we school and, and dorpen and so on, not always with the photos and the beelden and the good any. Schools and towns and so on didn't always want the photos and statues and things anymore. 
Dan sê hulle wat ons aan my maak. Toen sê ze, kom ons maak hier een plek en ons versamel dit hier. Dus ook omdat die gedenkversameling is. Come, we'll make a place and collect it here. Uh, bring dit by mekaar. That's a collection, you know. Ja, ja, ja. So, uh, dat is een plek het om goed by mekaar te sit wat, uh, wat nou onthuis is. Want die wil het gedraai. <laughs> a place to bring homeless things together because the wheel has turned. So, uh, maar ach, Andries, hoe gaan dit? Dankie. Hulle raas nie, altyd nie. There were often presents given to her father by black people in their own way. Nou, dit is een van die goed wat ons nou wil inbring. Daar was dikwels nogal um, geskenke wat gegees dier die swart mense op hulle manier. Daar is een damgebouw hier, so op die grens van Boputatswana. En hy het gesê, as jylle die sand aanbring, en jylle bring die klippe aan, mankies op die koppe en so, en dan sal ek die ingeneer gee, en ek sal die cement gee, dan bou ons saam hierdie, hierdie dambal. There was the dam that was built on the border with Waputatswana. He said, if you bring sand and you bring stones, baskets on your head and so on, I'll give the engineer and the cement. Then we'll build the dam wall together. En toe hy voltooi is die dag, en hom inwaai, toe het daar hele gemeenskap wat nou water het, het knoope van hulle kleren afgebreek en in een bottel gegooi. En gesê, dis ons aandenken, allemaal van dit voorbijgekom, al hulle knoop af en gooi hulle het in een bottel. Jy weet, dit was een gebaar om te sê, um, ons het hierdie, ons is saam in hierdie ding. Nou, dit was sy manier van werk. Hy het altijd gesê, ek gaan nie vir julle dambal bou nie, julle bou die dambal, ek gaan vir julle help. When it was finished, the whole community cut buttons off their clothes and threw them into a bottle and said, this is our memento. We were together in this thing. That was his way of working. Yeah, he was a philosopher, no? He was a philosopher. The, the braces, yeah. You can see where the bullet really is. Oh, yes, the first one was in the heart, second one in the shoulder to immobilizing, third one on the other shoulder, fourth one in the lungs and heart. So he was dead immediately. And you can see it's a professional job. Yeah, yeah, possible. Was what? 50 seconds? It's a death certificate. Somewhere there was a... How old was your father when he was assassinated? 66, well, a few days from 66. It was the 5th of September and the, um, his birthday was 8, 8 September. The three days before he was 66. I was meeting with people who were from an ANC background but who were also Christians. So suddenly this idea of of the ANC being a bunch of atheists, terrorists, communists, that was being challenged at a religious level. And for me that was important, to be challenged at that level. And to meet people with, who, who were clearly committed Christians, but who also had, could give you irrefutable evidence of how they were tortured by the security police. Um, and... Um, being given information about Steve Biko and, and just having access to 
to, to people and, and information that, that, be, that, that challenged the, the, uh, the propaganda, really, that I was uh, indoctrinated by. And I didn't accept those views immediately. I mean, I was, I was really struggling to um, deal with that information, and there was a, a sense of almost hoping and wishing that this was not true. But there was, it just wasn't uh, possible to um, ignore it and to say, well, you know, I'll just hold on to my previous beliefs because it was, it was not possible to do that. So that really started or initiated a process of probably three, four, five years of really in-depth reflection and studying and reading and talking to people and, and agonizing uh, within myself uh, about this um, and, and often being almost overwhelmed by it. You know, it, it is, there is a sense in which it is quite overwhelming if you begin to recognize the role of the church that I came from, that I was going to, that I was passionately committed to. Uh, also the, the crucial role played by, by the Afrikaner community, and then within the Afrikaner community, my own grandfather and my own family. So it wasn't just history out there, it was facts and figures, it was a painful and, and violent history that was closely connected with my own church, my own community, my own family. And it was impossible not to engage with it also existentially. It wasn't possible really to go into a sort of intellectual, exploratory exercise. It was an existential, deeply existential challenge. Um, and it was very difficult, you know, to work through that. I visited Valhalla while he was overseas, and during that period in England, we met a lot of the ANZ exiles and young people like ourselves, and they basically just sat us down and sat me down. Valhalla had already worked quite a journey at that stage and just spoke to us about a country that I had no clue even existed. It was, it was tough, you know, it was really tough, and I came back from that period in England after a couple of weeks, and everything had changed, all the authority figures in my life I suddenly had a question mark over um, the church, you know, my lecturers, um, parents. You suddenly realized that the news and the media was lying to you all this time. So from then onward, it was a more concerted journey of trying to figure out what that meant for us in South Africa. I think the, the political dynamics of, of uh, the world I've been living in in those years was such that... Uh, uh, move to the to the left um, was not one of the uh, probable options uh, for me. Uh, I did not turn uh, to that side. Um, it didn't make sense for me to to uh, go for a position in which I have to reject my um, my unique uh, heritage. Um, there, there, there just had to be other ways uh, to look at it. Um, if 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 history demanded from me uh, to reject myself, I was looking at history in that wrong way. That that was that was uh, the approach, my approach at that stage. So um, I I I hang out in uh, call it intellectual places where. Um, the the risk was quite 
big to be to be uh, seen as as a right wing. <laughs> Some of my friends at the university called me that lovable fascist because I I. Um, uh, did not, as was uh, expected by some, reject uh, Afrikaner ethnicity or even nationalism uh, at that stage. Everything was so controlled. You you couldn't physically go into a township where African people lived because the police would stop you. You know, you'd have to go with somebody and try and hope the police won't actually see you. The media was so controlled, so you see, saw so little. And then, of course, the lie was perpetuated by everybody. The, the, the universities who gave academic foundation to apartheid, the church which gave a religious connotation to it, you know, and a moral connotation. So when I came back... It, it it differed a little bit how I reacted. It, it changed over a period of time. Um, I increasingly then went in search of people who were more thinking like I did. Um, but, of course, the ANC was banned at that stage, and even just mentioning it or, you know, being involved in any way put, just put yourself at huge risk. Um, so it was pretty much... Um, only after we left the country um, in in eighty seven eighty eight um, and came back to England that we became very part more party orientated and, and made more concerted efforts to meet with the ANC people. I mean, there were periods of denial. I mean, almost wishing you know that this would just go away and wanting to speak to people who could you know really uh, give a different perspective. And of course, you know, the truth was always complex, you know, but, but, but you had to come to a point where you had to decide, uh, even though you don't want to deny everything that, that you grew up with, but you had to decide that there was something deeply wrong here. And it came to a point, I think, that it was clear to me that I couldn't continue studying theology to start with, that I had to understand the broader political scene better. And then gradually it came to a point where I just became alienated from the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, almost to the point where I became alienated from Christianity. Um, so there was a really a dark period of, of alienation and disillusionment with not only the church but the, the religious background, the faith, that made it possible for Christians to to go to church on Sunday and then on Monday support you know a political system that dehumanized and violated you know fellow Christians. Ons hoofdes van die Heere, wat die hemel en die aarde gemaakt het. Ons God, wat trouw blijkt op al die eeuwigheid en wat nooit laat waar die werke van sy hand in. Amen. Eerste en die derde, Sams is het woord. God's faithful pack the churches in prayer. In the Niederdeutz Reformierde Kerk, Karl's father, also Karl Boshoff, leads his congregation. On the piano, his wife Anna, and in the front row sits Karl. 
his faith in the tenets of his church unshaken. I say it is not true, Anna Bosov told me that evening when the sun had gone and the heat had settled. He was not a racist. We moved back to safer ground. I knew he had been attacked twice, shot by Pratt and stabbed by Safendas. When he was assassinated, they were in Florida, a suburb of Johannesburg. It was midday. They did not declare him dead immediately. They took him to Grotesker Hospital, but you saw, with those stab wounds, he couldn't have survived. She was telling me the story, she said, because the first attack gave the family a chance to talk it through together. He had said, leave it behind, go forward, go forward. Do your work. Kijk voor en toe. Doe je werk. If I think back uh, over the few years that I've been involved in this um, or, or involved in political thinking, I cannot think of any time at which I, I was on the point of rejecting the Afrikaner or Afrikaner culture or Afrikaans' language. Um, in fact, I do think that I've, I've, I've always been passionate about it. Maybe it was always impossible enough. It was always a project in, of, of impossibility, doing the, the, the one thing that goes against the stronger ties of history um, that, that, did attract, uh, that did attract me to it. Um, so... Uh, I don't think uh, um, I, I ever uh, came to the point of, of wanting to reject it and wanting to leave uh, that behind. It, it may be uh, very interesting to see what comes next when, when, Af- when the Afrikaner goes. Um, but we are talking about the space in which I live and a lot of other people live and a space with, outside of which we would be leading um, extremely impoverished lives. Uh, if, if, if things just go on as, as it is going on at present, we will be remembered for the strange English we, we talk. 
remember quite vividly, you know, the actual moment because I had this, you know, it wasn't very organized because things were just getting off the ground because it was unbanned only you know, a short while ago. But within the sort of local structures, you could uh, get an application form, you know, a membership form, and then you had to fill in your name and then you had to tick a couple of boxes, you know, and whether you're living in a shack or living in a in a township or, you know, it was basically assumed that, that you would be coming basically from... Uh, an impoverished sort of black background. Um, and I had this form with me for a couple of months and, and was seriously considering the possibility. And it was just, you know, you, it just happened one day where where I was um, just thinking deeply again about, about the whole um, idea. And, I, and a few months earlier I met uh, the then president of the ANC, Nelson Mandela, and... Um, that made a big impression on me, and that sort of opened up things again, and really sort of added an urgency to to this sense of I want to become involved and committed. And um, so I filled in the form on my own and sent it into the regional structure, and heard nothing from them for months. You know, it was never formally, you know, acknowledged, and there was no receipt given. But in my mind, that was the symbolic act. Milani joined a few months before that, but it was, would have been in would have been in the first part of 1992, the first couple of months during that time. My parents were not ANC and they certainly are not ANC and I am almost 100% sure that they will never be ANC. Um, at the same time, because we are not such a politicised family, unlike the Favors, it was of course less of an issue. What actually happened in terms of the, the whole process of being exposed in the sense in the media was uh, uh, a sentence in one of the satirical columns in one of the regional newspapers who referred to a rose by another name I think that was a little heading and it referred to Milani's uh, election to the local leadership of the Kayamandi ANC branch which was just outside Stellenbosch and somehow that news got through to the journalist and it was literally a two-line sort of little cynical comment about that and then of course the Sunday newspaper the big Sunday Times newspaper heard about this and they wanted to make a story out of it and they then approached Milani and they asked her whether I was also a member and um, and we we couldn't lie and we thought we will rather work with them and then we went to see uh, my parents in particular you know, this Saturday, I think, before the Sunday um, article, to just warn them that this is going to come out, and that was really there was no opportunity, there was no chance really to avoid the issue anymore. So we we had to go through that confrontation, and um, obviously it wasn't very well received. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the Favorts blame me for for the move towards the ANC, um, if they do, they certainly have never said it it might have been suggested and it would of course be untrue because both Phil Adam and I, it was a joint journey and if anything he most probably led the journey for a while. I of course became the more public face and even though the media was more interested in Malalam in the beginning, increasingly because I um, then went into parliament for the ANC I got the public face so obviously a lot of the anger was more directed at me um, but you know, um, it is something. It is. It's part of the painful 
history of our journey. Well, I think in the case of, of, of my mother, she would have uh, been very shocked and I think her biggest worry was that this would end up causing a major rift within the family. So I think she took the family sort of position. In my father's case, he also took the family position, but in a different way. I think he, as the oldest son within the family, felt that it was his almost responsibility to take a very strong public stand against what I was doing because he was also worried that the newspapers would use the family name and my connection to my grandfather and that it would be a, a way to really shame and, and, and criticise and reject what his beloved father fought for and stood for. So I think it was a combination of family and loyalty to his father and his own deep, strong political beliefs which basically would see the ANC as a, as a terrorist black power, you know, organisation. From, from that position, he really was not able to, to accommodate that, that uh, decision. So for him, it was the end of the relationship. We were very much seen as, as, as traitors within the, the Afrikaner community. It was said quite openly, Vlam's father said it, um, publicly in the media and distantiated himself from us publicly in the media, um, which was very painful and, and quite dangerous at that stage because the AWB had a hit list, the far-right Afrikaner um, Nazi-like movement, and we were told that we were on the hit list and... You know, it was some of their members who started assassinating Chris Harney and others. So we were told that we were very high up on the, on the hit list, and of course we felt that it was quite irresponsible from the family then to start using words like renegades or traitors because it obviously adds to to some of the anger. In within my own friendship group and so on, I lost all my friends. I have absolutely none of them left, which I had prior to that. Um, I. It, it, people despised the fact that we were part of the ANC. Um, I was spit on in town, and um, y yes, you know, it's a relative. It was a relative small price to pay in comparison with what African people had gone through for belonging to the ANC. We were never put into jail. We were never tortured. We, you know, we never lost family members. So in comparison, it, it's relatively small. But yes, it was a very unpopular thing to do. It took about 10 years, I would say, to come to a point where we were able to at least have a decent relationship. Um, we would not, I think, ever come to the point where we, where we, would, where we would agree to disagree and in, in any strong sense, you know, reconcile. I don't think we would get to that point. Uh, but perhaps reconciliation is also about being able to share the same space in a relatively decent way and at least have... Um, a decent relationship where we can share the same space. Um, so I think over time, and I think the fact that we've been away from South Africa and that he and that Milani would be not so publicly involved with, with the ANC and that I also continued my involvement in reconciliation work, uh, I think that, I think, conveyed to him the message that my commitment and involvement to the ANC was really about reconciliation. Um... And, and that that is my life journey. That's what I'm committed to doing for the rest of my life. <laughs>
when Valalem addressed his first public rally in Goodwood, which was a very conservative Afrikaner community in Cape Town, um, the AWB, the far-right new Nazi Afrikaner community, um, came up in full force, in uniform, fully armed, etc., and tried to break into the meeting. Um, there was a huge amount of security services and the peace secretariat and what caused more problems then was that people in the adjacent African areas heard that that there was an attempt from the AWB to break into the meeting. So they all piled into taxis with whatever they could find and all pitched up as well. So it was a very tension-filled meeting and, and, and certainly one where the police advised us strongly that it wouldn't have been a wise decision to go ahead. But, you know, if one constantly do not do things because you're driven by fear, it's, you will never do the things that you believe in. So we trusted and went ahead. And then, just before I spoke, uh, a young black South African poet stood up, uh, Sandili Likeni, and he read this poem while he, he uh, recited this poem in Afrikaans. And I just found it extremely moving, um, coming from him and also in that setting. Nkosi Sigaleli, Africa. Uit duizenden monden wordt die lied gedra. Ik sluit mijn oor, zoals een seraf skoor, val daar die stemmen strelend op mijn oor. Kozi Sikalel in Afrika. The song is carried from thousands of mouths. I close my eyes, like a choir of seraphim. Those voices fall soothing on my ear. Nkosi Sikalel in Afrika. Ons vraag is seen we hier voor Afrika. Ek kijk en sien die skare voor my staan, Zulu en Kolza, Sutu en Changan, en ek, a blanke, vele volkere ja, amal verenigd om Gods seen te vra, op net een thuiste, net een vaderland, want die alweise het ons saam geplant, en saam laat wortel in Zuid-Afrika. We ask your blessing for Africa, O Lord. I look and see the multitude standing before me, Zulu and Koza, Sutu and Shangan, and I, a white man. Many nations, yes, all united in asking God's blessing on one home, one fatherland, because the all-wise has planted us together and let us take root in South Africa. Kozi Sikalel i Afrika, sien hier, die land wat viele volkere dra, in Kozi Sikalel i Afrika, bless, O Lord, the country of many nations.